Good morning, church. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road. We are really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, if you're a guest with us, I just want, want, once again want to welcome you. That We're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning um, worshiping with us. We're going to jump in today to um, our new sermon series where we're going to be going through the Gospel of John. But let me pray for our time together today. Father, I ask that you would um, help us this morning. Help us understand your word. Help us internalize that word where it'll change us in the deepest parts of us. And I pray that it would change us as we leave this place and live our day-to-day lives. We trust that your spirit is here and will do that work as we um, dig in to this, uh, really this incredible passage this morning. And I want to um, just pray for um, the continuing work in the area of um, sanctity of life. Um, we believe here that all life is, is precious um, and should be um, protected, especially the unborn. And so I pray that that work would continue to move forward I pray that as a church, we would be about um, giving a voice to the voiceless, you know, standing up uh, for the unborn. But I also pray that we would love moms well. So I love things like the Eden Clinic, that we to love and take care of, of moms um, who are um, pregnant. I pray we'd be a church that comes alongside um, all moms who um, are pregnant and moms who have recently given birth. And I also pray that this would be a place and that your grace would be felt by those who have made mistakes in this area in their past. This is a hard day for some people because of guilt and shame from past decisions in this area. So I pray that if there are people here feeling that. I pray that your grace and your mercy would be felt and that those people would turn to you And trust that you're gentle and you will receive them with grace. And Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Today, we are talking about belief. Belief. That's that's really the the, the main one-word topic today. I was thinking this week, what, what makes up belief? We all say that a lot, like, right, I believe this. And, and if we were just asked, we believe in a lot of things, probably more things than we can even imagine. We just believe in them. Started thinking about, well, what causes belief? What, what makes us believe in something? Some of us, uh, or, or all of us should believe in something as sure as, like, gravity, right? Un- uh, provenable for, for, for years that gravity is real. We believe in gravity, right? We believe in silly things as well that maybe are not true, like you shouldn't open an umbrella inside, or you shouldn't op- uh, walk under a, a ladder that's, that's opened, or maybe like me, if you're scared to death of spiders that you feel like every time you see a brown spider, it's a brown recluse that could kill me on the spot. Or if you see a, brown, a black spider, it's automatically a black widow and it could kill me on the spot. Um, 
and you may yell across to your spouse across the house to please come handle this for me because I do think this spider the size of an eraser tip is a brown recluse. I, I swear by it, right? We have irrational beliefs as well, right? Uh, we also believe in things that are more important, like we believe that if you're married, we believe that our spouse loves us. And when they made those vows to us, that they were real. There's some depth there in our beliefs. And the most important thing as followers of Jesus we can believe in is that God's grace and mercy are available to, to us. And that when Jesus did the work he did, it saved us from our sin, and we believe in that, and we can trust the truth of the gospel. So we all have these beliefs, whether we know them or not, off the cuff. And so what if, I think this is what John is getting at in this letter that we're about to dig into, is what if something so radical happened in the world that it changed everything about everything, everyone about what you believed. And this is what John, I think, is trying to communicate as he writes this gospel. And we'll get into that more as we work through the text today. Let's talk about this book, the gospel of John. And most of you at probably some point in your life have, have kind of been confused on what is the gospel and what are gospels, Right? Well, there's a difference. So the gospel is just simply the good news uh, of the person of work of, G in, of Jesus, right? The good news that of, his, of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his reign and his return in the future, right? All these things are kind of pulled into what is the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. It is news. It is historical. It's something that has happened, Right? The Gospels are the four books in the New Testament, the first four, that really unpack and teach us more about the person of Jesus, who is the center point of the Gospel. So these Gospels, why they're named the Gospels, because they're accounts, narratives, kind of little biographies of the person of Jesus. John is one of four Gospels. The, the other three Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those three are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. John is not a synoptic Gospels. That, in synoptic, that first kind of part of that word syn, um, S-Y-N, it's that same word, the same uh, prefix that's used in synced, like something's together or synced up. The reason why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of put together as synoptic Gospels is because they, they're, they're similar. There's a lot of overlap. Their purpose in writing was similar. When they were writing, it is about the same time. They were all written probably within about 10 years of each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were. John was written uh, uh, quite a bit later than those three gospel writers wrote them. Right? Those, those, those guys were focused a lot on what happened, what was going on. They, they wrote their books about 20 years after uh, the, the life of Jesus, and so they were relying mostly on eyewitness accounts of those who spent time with Jesus, and they passed along the things, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote those things down for us about 20 years after Jesus was on earth. Now, 50 years after Jesus was on earth was about the time that John wrote his gospel. So 30 years later, John was one of the last books written in the New Testament. 
John was written by not John the Baptist, another kind of confusing thing in there. John the Baptist was someone different that we read about in the Gospels. The, the, the Gospel of John was written by um, John, who was in the inner circle of Jesus. He, with Peter, James, and John often referred to as kind of the inner, inner circle of Jesus. Those three knew Jesus the best. This is why John's Gospel takes a, a pretty different tone than the other three. You learn more kind of intimate details about Jesus. You learn more kind of behind-the-scenes things about Jesus, about the high priestly prayer and some of the things that took place leading up to the death of Christ that you don't get in the other three Gospels. Why? Because John was there. John was one of the closest disciples to Jesus, so he knew Jesus arguably the best out of anybody uh, that lived at the time of Jesus. This book has saved many people throughout history just reading this book. St. Augustine was saved by just reading the Gospel of John. Now, when I lived in China and we would, we would uh, distribute um, uh, Bibles and, and, and uh, tools like that in Chinese, um, one of the things, the first things we would hand out would be the Gospel of John in Chinese. That, that was it. No, no other part of the Bible because we wanted to keep it simple and we felt like John was a great book for people who don't know Jesus and those who were just starting their relationship with Jesus. That's the kind of book John is. John's the son of Zebedee. Um, you'll see that come up in the Gospels. And John often refers to himself as just the disciple in this book. And he doesn't say me or I in this book. He says the disciple. And sometimes he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, Seems a little arrogant at first glance of, yeah, I'm the one he loved, right, out of all the disciples. But really, I think the way we can read that is that he just knew. He had this unwavering confidence that Jesus loved him. He spent time with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew Jesus loved him. And he probably had plenty of time to think about that in the 50 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven and between the time he that and he wrote this book. Now, here's the purpose of the book, right? That's kind of some background. The purpose of the book, like I said, is belief. Look at John 20, 30 and 31. This is towards the end of John. There's only one chapter after this. It's 21 chapters long. At the end of chapter 20, listen to what John says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's like, I couldn't write everything down. Right? Like in the three years I spent with him, I couldn't write it all down. There's so many other things he did. Listen to verse 31. But these are written, the things I have written down for you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that we would believe, that we would continue to believe and that through that, we would have life, life to the fullness, life that Jesus describes in all of the Gospels. So ultimately, John wants to convince you to believe. That's why he wrote the book. This guy, I want to write this book to convince people to believe in who Jesus was. Maybe because he wrote, he, he wrote it so late, he was trying to fill in some gaps. He read, obviously, he probably read for sure Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account at this time he wrote it. And now he's probably going to try to fill in the gaps that they didn't have access to because they weren't in his inner circle, right? He wrote that we would believe and that we'd have life in 
Jesus. Now, the 18 verses we're going to walk through today, go through today, are arguably the most theological rich passage in all of Scripture. Like, John has packed so much theological depth into these 18 verses, you could almost see all di- almost all the topics contained in a systematic theology book are found in these 18 verses. John covers so much ground in these ver- in this in this prologue, right? This 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 intro, a prologue's to set up the rest of the book, kind of to intro into the book to kind of set everyone up for what the book is going to be about. Saint Augustine once said that these first 18 verses uh, of the gospel ought to be copied in letters of gold, and placed in the most conspicuous places in every church. Like they need to be written in gold, and everybody needs to know about them, and everyone needs to see them, is what Augustine said. A structure of the prologue, a lot of different commentators um, have kind of different views on how many uh, topics he actually touches. And just for the sake of time today, we're going to kind of uh, simplify it down to five. You could probably go up to 10 or even 15, some commentators do, but we're going to limit it to five today. Five things we're going to see that John lays out right here at the beginning of the book to say, to really convince us to believe and to convince us that we should read the rest of the book. Let's look at verse one. Or the first thing I should say, let's go first. The first thing he's going to lay out is Jesus has always existed. He's always existed. Verse 1, in the beginning, you have echoes of Genesis 1 there, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And one of the key tenets of Orthodox Christianity is that Jesus has always existed. Jesus wasn't created. He's part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son, and he has always existed. There was never a time in our history where Jesus wasn't from all eternity past. He's always existed. This is important when we're going to believe in something that someone has told us, right? We're much, more, we're much less likely to believe a, a newcomer that's just dropped on the scene that starts teaching stuff than someone who, who has claims that he's been around since the beginning of all creation and never was actually created. He was there from the beginning. This carries a lot of weight. Right? It should carry a lot of weight when we're thinking about what should we believe in? Whose word should we put our trust in? Right? Jesus helped in creation. Colossians tells us that all things were made through him and for him. He was there at the beginning. And I'm much more likely to believe someone's words if they were there at the beginning of all creation than someone who came later on. Um, that's one of John's purposes, again. To, again, he wants us to believe. Jesus was, has never been created. He's existed from the beginning. The second kind of tenet or, or thing that John lays out, is that Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Right? And Jesus, this means like everything about our life, in him was life. He, again, he's a part of creation. He gave us life. He brings life into existence. And no offense or um, nothing against Danny Rojas saying football is life, 
right? Or, or we say this is life or that is life, right? That, but, but that is not true, right? If that really is true, then you have problems, right? If something like that is your entire life, right? It's funny, but it's not true. When Jesus says, I am the life, he truly is the life. And it's not just physically either. It also forces us to ask the question, what am I building my life around? Or whatever, if, if we lost something, what would we say that what would make us say life just isn't worth living anymore if we lost this one thing, right? So whatever you think living is, if it's apart from Jesus, it's not going to work in the long term. That thing can be taken away from you. And we're all prone to this. We all need to be reminded that Jesus is our life. He gives us life, and he is our life. And we can trust him and believe in him because of that. Next, John says that Jesus is light. We have the end of verse 4, and the life was the light of men. And the verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Once again, you kind of see imagery of, of Genesis there, this, these, the same kind of language. There was a man sent out from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. That's not John who's writing this book. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Jesus, one of the the purposes of Jesus' coming is to shed light, to bring light. We can think of all the things that um, light brings us, right? If If the sun didn't exist, there would be no life. There'd be, we'd, be, we'd have problems if the sun um, didn't exist, if there was no light, if God didn't create that, right? Jesus brings light. All the things that we're thankful for now that, that electricity has provided and those kinds of things, right? Jesus is light. Light also reveals darkness. Jesus came to reveal darkness. Darkness in the world and in each one of us. And when Jesus shines light on our issues, on our junk, it should compel us to repent. It should compel us to come to God and humble ourselves and say, yeah, I'm in need of a savior. I have some dark stuff in me. Jesus, come in and shine the light on those things and help me deal with those issues. Uh, John, the apostle John, talking about John the Baptist, is saying John was a witness, which really is, it's like John the Baptist was holding up a mirror towards God, and he was trying to show the world, all the people around them, a reflection of who God really is. John was not, the John the Baptist was not the light. He wasn't the one that the source of light was. He was trying to shine kind of light on the true light. He was trying to reflect the true light to the rest of the world. The apostle John wants us to see this. This is our role as well, to be witnesses, not just to talk about Jesus and speak about Jesus, although that is included, it's to actually be reflections in all of our life of who Jesus really is. It's what being a witness is. It's a reflector of the true light. Think about reflectors on a bicycle so that people can see you when you're riding, or reflectors on running gear, shoes that show up When it's really, really dark, they reflect any kind of light, especially headlights. When they hit those things, it puts light back in your face. Same idea, right? And kind of a careful note here, when it's talking about witnesses, it's interesting. John uses that phrase, though he was not the light. John the Baptist had a huge following. 
People follow John the Baptist. People look to John the Baptist as their spiritual authority and their rabbi and, and this, this guy that came on the scene preaching this good news. And he clearly says he was not the light. And I think it's, it's a cautionary tale for us to not, um, to, to, to not platform pastors, ministry leaders, people in your own life, mentors, because they are not the light. Pastors, ministers, ministry leaders are merely witnesses. They're reflectors of the true light. Whenever pastors or spiritual leaders or authority become the light, things get broken. People get hurt, right? We are merely witnesses. We're reflectors of the true light, okay? So Jesus has preexisted. Jesus is life. Jesus is light, John, those three things. Fourth, Jesus is glorious. Let's look at 14. We skipped a few there, but I'm going to come back to those uh, verses. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This summarizes the incarnation, right? This, This beautiful doctrine of the creator, God, Jesus, who is there before all creation, comes down on, into our broken and messy world, becomes flesh, takes on human form, and lives a life that we all live, and dies a horrific, torturous, brutal death. And it starts with the incarnation, right? This, and, and when John says he, we've seen his glory, glory meaning uh, weightiness, right? The fullness of, 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 of everything something is. That's what glory is, Right? And so John is saying we felt the weight of him. When he came, we felt the weight of his character. We felt the weight of his love. We felt the weight of his death, his grace, his mercy, his righteous anger. All of his characteristics, John is saying we felt his glory. We felt the weight of it. And we spent a lot of time on Advent on these verses. Um, I wish we could just camp on this verse and go in deeper, but you can go back to some of the Advent uh, uh, sermons as we kind of uh, pick that particular verse apart. But bottom line is Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy. Wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good man. Jesus isn't someone that you invite into your life when it's convenient, right? Like these characteristics, his glory, when we see his glory, who he truly is, all we can do is worship. All we can do is say, you're my Lord. I want to give all of my life to you. I don't want to pick and choose and bring you in and think about you only when it's convenient for me. I want all of you. I want to learn about you. I want to worship you. All of those things because of who Jesus is. He is God in human flesh. And Jesus is, is and was a real person. Not even non-biblical history books talk about Jesus. He was a historical figure. That's, there's no argument there. The question becomes, who was Jesus, right? Who was this guy? Was he, was he just a teacher or was he more? Was he just a good moral leader or was he more? And for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, that's the question to wrestle with. Who was Jesus? It's not if Jesus was real. He was real. It's who was he? Was he who he says he was? Comparing all these other things that we've talked about and John's trying to persuade you with, persuade us with, who was Jesus? 
Right? He was glorious. We felt the weight of who he was. Lastly, the fifth thing, Jesus is gracious, or he's full of grace. Um, the, the last kind of phrase of verse 14, he was full of grace and truth. And then you look at verse 16. For from his fullness, or everything that we saw of him when he came, his glory, we have received grace upon grace. It says we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And what John is saying here is that God giving um, us his law, God's people his law in the Old Testament, was an act of grace. It was. God didn't have to do that. God, God gave us the law as an act of grace so we could know the way that leads to flourishing in our life. In the, in, the, in, the, in the Israelites' life, that was an act of grace. But when Jesus came in, 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 in the fullness, and we tr- truly see the full character of God, we have grace and truth, and there's a fullness to it. Right? It's not just you've received grace. John says grace upon grace. It's kind of an, a weird, interesting phrase there, but John's trying to make the point. This is overflowing grace. It's, it's so much grace that you can't even get your mind around. Grace upon grace, upon grace. When, we, when Jesus came in all of his fullness, that's what the world has received. Jesus is gracious. He's full of grace. He wants us to come to him. He's, he's, he's gentle and lowly, and his yoke is easy, and the burden is light, he says. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. We see how he treats children in his book. He was gentle, and he says, this is the faith that you need to model, the faith of a child. Jesus is gracious. So you have these five things. Jesus was preexistent. He always has been. He's life. He's light. He's glorious, and he's gracious. We see those things in this prologue. Now I want to go back to verse 9, because this is the only part in this prologue where, where John asks something of us. John um, lays out an invitation to everyone in these verses. Let's read it. The true light, which we've seen is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And we see several things here in this invitation that I want to really dig into, because this is where we need to, if we've, if we've tuned this out or we've kind of got lost in maybe some theological weeds, I want you to tune back in, because he's talking to everyone here. He's giving us invitation, right? The invitation is to all. Now, with Jesus, we see this in the Gospels clearly. The, the, the invitation is broad. Jesus says, all who, who come to me, right? He says, come to me. And that invitation is for all. So the invitation is broad, but the way is narrow. So there's a, there's a broadness to the way of Jesus, but there's also, it's narrow when you come right down to it because Jesus exclusively said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. So he's narrowing the way down there. But his offer is is gracious and it's open 
to all. Now, John, remember, his point of writing this whole gospel, all 21 chapters, is that we might believe. And that we would continue to believe so that we would have life. And here in verse 12, we see that word believe there. But we also see, but he says, but to all who did receive him. So there's an aspect of belief, but there's also this aspect of receiving when it comes to this invitation. Now, in our culture, in our world, belief is kind of a, we're pretty narrow when we think of, when we say belief. It's often has to do with our intellect, only with our intellect, and maybe facts, logic, proof, data, all of those things. And that's a part of belief, but that's just a part of belief. That's not the fullness of belief. Start using words like trust and put your faith in, right? And this is what John's trying to get at when he says receive. There's this relational component to our belief. We have to welcome him in. We have to receive him. We have to see this as a relationship. He's uniting himself to us. We're uniting ourselves to him. It's like if you were welcoming someone into your home or into your life. Right? This is like hospitality language here. Though all who did receive him, believe and receive, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? So we have to kind of broaden our view, I think, of belief when John says, I've written this so that you may believe. We have to broaden that as well. And we think of last week, we talked in John 15 about abiding. We need to abide in him. We continue to remain in him. Right? This is a relational Thing. Our faith is relational between one another and between us and God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So it's not just believing some facts about Jesus. It's not checking off some boxes of some logic and everything makes sense and some proof and some data. That's good, but it's relational, right? And we see that next in that God welcomes us into his family. He says he gave the right to become children of God. God didn't have to do that. God could have saved us. And then left us kind of separate, kind of like, like our, we could have been justified in the courtroom of God. Our sins could have been removed. But God goes a step further, and he actually brings us into his family. He welcomes us. He adopts us as sons and daughters into his family. Again, relational. And this has major impact for how we do life um, as a church and as brothers and sisters, right? We use that language because we, 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 we love one another as brothers and sisters because we're in the same family now. How? Because God brought us into his family. He brought us into the family of God. And that last line here, verse 13, he says, who were born. So the, they, were, they were born into the family of God. They became Christians, not of blood, so this isn't a biological thing. So you can't claim your bloodline for making you acceptable to God. You can't claim that this was a part of your will, right? The will of the flesh. Like I worked hard enough or I'm better than you or I'm more moral than you that gets me into God's family. No. Last thing, nor of the will of man. It wasn't a good decision. It wasn't because you had all the facts and other people didn't. That's not why you believed and received him. It says here that you received him not, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He is the author of our salvation. He is the one that saves us. And it, why does John make sure we know this? So that we may not boast. Paul talks about this. 
So we have nothing to boast about. We can't boast about how much data or, or, or good logic we had or our good decision-making process or I was born into a great family and that would cause, or, or I'm a really upstanding righteous person. No, those things don't save us. Only, we're only saved by the will of God. Believing and receiving and God doing that inner work inside of us. So back to John's point of believing. Um, we have to believe. This is part of John. This is John's purpose in writing this letter. And also in this prologue, these things that he's touched on, these five things, he's going to come back to these things over and over and over throughout this book. So something you can keep your eye on are these things, going back to these first 18 verses, as we begin to look at these stories, like um, here in a few weeks, we're going to look at the wedding um, at Cana that, that, that Jesus comes into, Right? We're going to see other really popular, the, the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. We're going to look at that as well. So all of these themes are going to come up as we walk through this book. It's John's a good writer. He's giving us his prologue to prepare us for those things. So how should we respond? How should we respond? And we've already, we've already been given this invitation. As we read this text, there's a clear invitation to us to come in to the family of God. So I think there's three ways we can respond. First, if you're not a believer in this room, um, it, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't have made it any more clear to you today how to become a follower of Jesus, right? Believing in Jesus, right? Believing in these things about Jesus. Believing that he saved you um, when you were um, unlovable, like he did for the Christians in the room. That we didn't, he didn't save us because of our performance or how good of a person we were or the family we were born into or our experiences. Those things don't save us. He saved us sheerly by his grace and his mercy that is found in Jesus, right? Believe in that. Believe that he took God's wrath upon himself. He got the wrath of God, paid the penalty on the cross, and he gives us his righteousness when we believe and have faith. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our righteousness that wanes every day. We're not, I'm not righteous every day in the way I live. But he sees Jesus' righteousness, which never changes. There's so much freedom in that. There's so much freedom in trusting when you wake up in the morning that God is basing his acceptance on you and on me on the righteousness of Jesus and not on my righteousness. And that compels me to want to honor God and love God and, and live the way he's called us to live in the scriptures. So if you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, I pray you would believe. Believe this morning. Number two, the, the other way you can respond. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're distant from God right now. Maybe you're going through a, a dry season or there's things in your life that have gotten in the way and your faith and God have, have taken a back seat in your life. I would encourage you to see this as a time of renewal. Maybe it starts today with this text. And throughout this book that you would commit yourself kind of to this, this season of renewal in your faith. That you would come back to God. That you would begin to pursue him again. That you would begin to spend time with him in his word. Time with, with other brothers and sisters around you um, that can encourage you and support you as you seek to be renewed through the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've just been distracted or life has gotten away. That's possible. And if you're not in either one of those two categories, the third invitation for all of us, if you don't follow one of those, is to pursue him, to continue to, pers to pursue him, to go after him. 
Maybe it's been a while since you've heard these, these theological ideas talked about that I ran through today quick. Go back and do some deeper digging into these things, right? As you see things pop up in John, spend more time in the text. Study it more, right? Consider the claims of Jesus. We talked about this last week. To, what does it look like to abide? Well, it's to create time to spend with him, with spiritual practices like reading scripture, Time in prayer, right? This is how we abide in him, and this is what leads to life and what leads to joy. That's what John says in John 15. So these are the invitations for us. And I would pray that we would receive his invitation as, as, as a glorious, gracious Lord who is life and light, and he's existed before all creation, and we can trust him. When he says, I am God, we can trust him. When he says, I'm your savior, you can trust him. When he, says, when he says, I've forgiven all of your sin because of what I've already done and it's finished, we can trust him because of the things that John has laid out for us today at the beginning of this book. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this, this book. As I've begun reading it and studying it, I, I, I'm excited. I can't wait to continue to dig into this book that this, this, this guy named John who spent so much time with Jesus right there by his side has kind of insider access to the person and work of Jesus. And my prayer for my friends in this room is the same for me, is that you would, you would change us, that you would see John and his writing and that you would draw us near to you through the time we spend studying and reading and listening to your spirit and how you want to challenge us and encourage us and convict us as a result of going through this book. Help us. We're humble. We need you. It's not about us. It's about you. We need your help. We want to be good reflectors and witnesses of you, the light. Help us do that. If we're not in community right now with other brothers and sisters who challenge us and point us back to these things, I pray that you would compel us to get in community of some sort. I pray if people are afraid of that or that's scary, I pray you would help um, those around, uh, around them in this church come alongside of them and make that process easier. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.